Lord, you are so patient with us, and um, God, you're so faithful with us. And Lord, there's so much to learn. Um, and sometimes we we would just rather not learn it, and other times we have every intention of learning it, but we don't take the time to learn it. And um, there are just thousands of reasons for us not to learn anything about you, and our flesh is the number one reason. Our flesh doesn't want to learn anything about you. But God, as we work through our studies in Sunday school, which, by the way, are incredible, and the Wednesday night with the ladies and the men and Sunday mornings, God, we pray that just our our ears and our eyes would be attentive and that our hearts would respond. We ask these things in your name. Thank you. Amen. So a review of last week, we studied how the crowd of people who were following Christ had their eyes set on Jerusalem as their destination, and Jesus had his sights set upon the cross. And it made all the difference in the world. The crowd was focused, was mesmerized and excited by what Jesus had done, but they didn't know him. And we talked about maybe that's us sometimes. We've learned so much about Jesus, and we've, we've had so many opportunities, especially in the United States, that... We know a whole lot about what he did, but we've, we've never really opened the door for him to be our Lord and our Savior. You need to do that. We're going to give you a chance to do that again, again this Sunday. They recognized him as the son of David, according to Scripture, the prophet from Nazareth, from Galilee, and the king of Israel. And all these, although these titles were accurate, they were not adequate. We also noted that the triumphal entry fulfilled many prophecies, including Zechariah 9.9 and Daniel 9.24. But there's more to the story. So in order for us to advance our study in Luke, we're going to be studying John. (laughs) Because there are some things that John has put in into his account that Luke has not included. And it's the same with Matthew and Mark. But this is really important if we want to understand the chronology of how things happened and why they happened. So in Luke's account, we view the triumphal entry as an event that flowed effortlessly from Jericho into Bethphage, into Bethany, and then into Jerusalem via the Jericho Road. Luke's account is very concise, and it's in order as far as what he was telling. And by the way, it is accurate. But to get the complete picture, we have to look at the accounts in the other Gospels as well. So as a reminder, Jerusalem was located southwest of Jericho and Bethany, about two miles to the east of Jerusalem. We are not sure exactly where Beth Fage was because there's no marker there. It was like a crossroads. We're assuming it is between Bethany and Jerusalem. It makes sense that it would be. But the Jericho Road connected these three places, from Jericho, actually four places, from Jericho to Bethany to Bethphage to Jerusalem, and it went further still. Last week we learned a little bit about the history that's connected to the Jericho Road. So beginning with the Gospel of John, we we read this, or we we understand this. Many, many people have traveled to Jerusalem. They are staying with relatives and friends throughout the area. 
Think of it as a great convention near one of our cities in the United States, and the city is incapable of housing everyone that's going to be coming to that convention. The most recent convention that we had in in Cleveland was a Republican convention, and uh, hotels were booked as far out as an hour and a half from where the convention was. So when the Passover celebration when they were preparing for that, if you if you lived within a few miles of Jerusalem, all of your friends would come and stay with you. And then you would attend the Passover as a family. So many, many people traveled to Jerusalem, and many of them have already gathered in the temple courtyards as they had arrived early to go through purification rituals to purify themselves. So we begin with John 11.55, in 56, <clears throat> in the reading, excuse me. There goes one paycheck. I dropped the microphone. John eleven fifty five to 56 says this, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. 56, they were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? (laughs) So we see here that there was a great anticipation concerning the possibility of seeing Jesus. No television, of course, no satellite, of course, no photographs, of course. So what they knew about Jesus was hearsay, secondhand, thirdhand, fourthhand, whatever that may be. So there's this great anticipation. They were probably wondering, what does he look like? Or I wonder what his voice sounds like. Or maybe even more so, I wonder if we're going to get to see one of the miracles that he performs. There was another group of people who was anticipating the arrival of Jesus as well. These were the chief priests and the Pharisees. But their anticipation of his arrival was laced with anxiety and fear. quite frankly, they would have been thrilled if someone would have just taken him out, would have killed him. There's no doubt in my mind, honestly, that some of them were probably praying for that. Lord, we just don't know what to do with this, and we know that he's a blasphemer. We know he's a hypocrite. We know he's an imposter, but he has this following behind him. Lord, if it's okay with you, why don't you just take him out? God, why don't you just take him out? That would have solved a lot of problems. We read in John eleven fifty seven. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know. Why? So they might arrest him. So we see here that the chief priests and Pharisees were plotting to arrest Jesus. They were proactive. They were prepared, they had a plan, and they were resolute. Everything they held dear was on the line. Now, this is the one thing that the Pharisees, chief priests, and Jesus had in common at this time. All of them were looking toward the cross. Jesus knew the cross was his destiny. The chief priests and the Pharisees may not have been envisioning the cross But their goal was to kill him. And we find that out later, by the way. It doesn't take us long. The question is, did Jesus know their plans? Well, of course he did. 
making other plans. So many Jews have already arrived and are excited about the, about the Passover celebration. Jesus, his disciples, and thousands of people are now on their way from Jericho, heading toward Jerusalem on the Jericho Road. And in between Jesus and Jerusalem is Bethany. Let's continue with our story in John 12, verse 1, which is also on your scripture sheet. Six days before the Passover... Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Now today, Bethany is known as Azariah, which is a name derived from Lazarus. It is inhabited by very few people. They estimate 20 families. And it's a very, very extremely poor town. Luke will tell us later in his gospel that after Jesus rose from the grave, he led his disciples as far as Bethany before he ascended. Isn't that interesting? Not Jerusalem. Not Bethlehem. Not Nazareth. Back to his friends. I wonder if these three also witnessed the Lord's ascension into heaven. Probably. Maybe. <clears throat> account of this in Matthew 26, 6. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. So John is telling us they've gone from Jericho into Bethany. And now Matthew is telling us where they stopped. They stopped in the house of Simon the leper. So they stopped at the house of Simon, who was identified by his disease. He was a leper. We can assume that perhaps Jesus had healed him earlier because Jewish law demanded that lepers live in quarantine. They had leper colonies to accommodate them. They lived isolated, apart from the clean people. Now, some scholars believe that Simon was perhaps the father of of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. It was a small town. They were a wealthy family. Very wealthy. And if that were so, and I'm not saying it is, but I can certainly see where it would be. Can you imagine belonging to this family and Jesus heals your father of a socially unacceptable and painful disease that made him untouchable and raises your brother from the dead? Father, you are restored. Go live with your kids. Lazarus dies. Jesus hears about it. He waits three and a half days so he can be good and dead, so to speak, with the, the, the mysticism. Goes and raises him from the dead. The bond that this would have created would have been very tender, strong, and unbreakable. And these are the friends he chose to be with to prepare for his final days. And by the way, just for the record, they were all single. Can you hear that? I know we live in a culture that it's just a whole lot easier to be a couple than it is single. And I wouldn't want to be single. 
But I can say this. There is much more freedom in what Jesus can do with you. If you're accountable for you. And I think it's interesting that his three best friends were single. And probably the father as well. So a good question might be for us, from what disease has Jesus healed us? We read about leprosy. We read about being raised from the dead. By the way, we're going to be raised from the dead if we die before Jesus returns. So that's going to happen. We know that. Some can look at their lives and testify that they were delivered from a horrible, otherwise deadly disease. And some have been delivered from the effects of what should have been a devastating injury. And all of us who are believers in Christ have been delivered from not only death, punishment our sins should bring upon us. How about you? From what do you need to be delivered this morning? And the lost alike. If you don't know Jesus, you need Jesus. You need to be delivered from your sin. But if you do know Jesus, you may be in need of being delivered from a stronghold in your life. And that might be bitterness or anger or lusting. It might be greed. It might be jealousy. It might be pride. And if you are a believer, although these things cannot keep you from heaven, they can certainly grieve God and you and those who love you. So how grateful are we? The human memory is very short when it comes to blessings and even miracles. Would you agree with that? How many of you have been on your knees either <clears throat> physically or otherwise in your, in your heart, your heart's on your knees and you're laying everything out to God and you're saying, God, please, please, please do this. And it happens. And maybe you even got to the place, Lord, if you do this, don't say you don't do that. I know. Then I won't or I will. And whether by the hand of God or modern medicine, and by, by the way, I believe many times it's the same thing. God answers that prayer and six months later, you're doing that thing again. How grateful are we? I think this might be a prayer to begin our day with. Thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice, your faithfulness, your grace and mercy, and steadfast love that continues to present me as justified before your Heavenly Father. That's grateful. So here we learn that Jesus and the crowd who was following Jesus, a really big crowd, by the way, from Jericho, went to Bethany to the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus six days prior to the triumphal entry that we read about last week. So what happened from there? Well, this is what we learn. Number one, there was a feast. John twelve two. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served. Now that's a shock. That's what she does. It's who she is. It's who she is. People, okay, i got to fix a meal. i got to clean our tent. I've got to sweep our dirt floor because we're having company. 
Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. He may have been only two weeks old by then. Did you follow that? He'd been dead. He may have been only two weeks old by then. Number two, Jesus was anointed with oil, John twelve three. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Martha did what she did and Mary did what she did. And Lazarus was reclining at the table with the man who raised him from the grave. Number three, the disciples get it wrong. I know that's a surprise. These poor guys. John 12, 4 says this. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. And we might say, well, that only says it's some who were there. Well, Matthew says, when the disciples saw it, they were indignant. Saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. And of course, Judas was the most hypocritical of all and grandstanding like he always did. He could not have cared less. He was embezzling the whole time. That's scripture too. So there was a feast. Jesus was anointed with oil. The disciples get it wrong. And number four, Jesus rebukes his disciples. John 12, 6. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Can you imagine hearing that from Christ? See, what I might scream at you would not affect you as much as the Savior going, leave her alone. Because of who it's coming from. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. We read in Matthew 26, 10, But Jesus, aware of them grumbling, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? Do you have nothing better to do than to trouble this woman? Jesus understood that God the Father had ordained Mary to do this. Therefore, he graciously received her offering. This seems like a small thing. There's thousands of people outside their door. They brought food. They're out there having a picnic. And they're having a feast in the house of Mary, Martha, Lazarus, and probably Simon. And Martha's doing what she does. It's beautiful. The house looks great. Beautiful food. Mary is at the feet of Jesus, and she does this simple thing. She anoints his feet. She puts uh, perfume on his feet. It's just a small thing. <clears throat> How important was this? Matthew twenty six thirteen. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, What she has done will also be told in memory of her. That's huge. Is that us? Who would have thought 
that such a small gesture would have been warranted the attention of heaven. And yet we see this principle time and time again in Scripture. This should both encourage and concern us. No one is too needy or poor to be a blessing to God. Adversely, those who have much will be judged accordingly. And Mary's gesture would have been judged on both sides of that ledger. We're a wealthy family. The perfume was very expensive. And it was offered from her heart of hearts as well. And as a result of that, God says through Jesus, Jesus says this, I tell you, what she did here will be remembered every time the gospel is told throughout the world. Family, every thought, every gesture, and every gift receives the attention of heaven. It just does. We know this by way of Psalm 139, 1 through 4. This is what it says. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern from afar. You search out my path and my lying down are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. So we see that Christ's prophecy concerning Mary continues to be fulfilled even as we read this scripture today. We're part of the fulfillment of that prophecy. And it's something, it's amazing. You know who's noticing that? Jesus. Right now. He's noticing this. And as a reminder, Jesus' sights are fixed on the cross. And to that end, God is providing all that is necessary for Christ to fulfill his mission, including being anointed with oil. This is all part of the process. It's a fulfillment. So meanwhile, temple, we see John 12, 9 playing out. When the large crowd of the Jews in Jerusalem learned that Jesus was there in Bethany, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Now, this was just too much to resist for the crowd. Would it be for you? I'm from days, I'm from weeks away from Jerusalem. And I keep hearing about this Jesus. And I heard that he raised Lazarus from the dead. And I hear that he's coming to this Passover. And you know, I'll bet, I'll bet he's visiting Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. And here I am in the temple. And this is exciting. Maybe we'll get to see both of them. The one who was raised and the one who raised him. Well, enter the chief priests, the holy men, those who are in charge of the, of the sacrificing of the Passover lambs, the most righteous, the most holy, if you will, ceremony a priest can perform, have the privilege of performing. What was their solution to this situation? Were they persuaded that perhaps just maybe given the evidence that Jesus could be for real? 
And that Lazarus really was proof of who Jesus claimed to be? No. Because if they investigated this, that is exactly what they feared might be true. Have you been there? Lord, what would you have me do? And in the back of your mind or someplace in your heart, you go, I know what you want me to do, but as long as I don't ask it, you won't tell me what you want me to do. That may buy me a day or a week or two days or something. And so I'm not going to really pray about that, but I will think about it. If someone asks if I've been praying about it, I'm going to say, well, yeah, I've been thinking about that. By the way, that's a cop-out. Because if you're praying about it, you're going to say, I've been praying about it. They didn't want to know that. So John twelve ten says this. So the chief priest made plans to put who? Lazarus to death. We're going to kill him. To put him to death as well. Who else do they mean then? Jesus. Let's take them both out. Why would they want to do that? Verse 11, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Next verse, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast, meaning the Passover celebration in Jerusalem, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem from Bethany. In other words, some of the people who were in Bethany, who saw Lazarus and who saw Jesus, and there were thousands of people there, they rushed back to Jerusalem and they start telling their friends or their family or whomever, Jesus is going to come to Jerusalem and guess who he's bringing with him? Lazarus. Have you ever thought about that? That on this final Passover, Jesus brought his three best friends with him, and one was was the man he had raised from the dead. So the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So in other words, some people had been in Bethany, ran ahead to Jerusalem to tell them. So what was the response of these people that received this news? John twelve thirteen. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Have you ever wondered how when Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, somehow people in Jerusalem came out and met him, what we would say halfway, but it wasn't. They came out and they were praising him here and they were pray- and, and his followers were praising him. Well, that makes perfect sense because Jesus is on his way from Bethany into Jerusalem and the people that was following Jesus, thousands of them, they're singing and praising. And in the meantime, someone has rushed ahead and said, he's coming to Passover. And guess who's with him? Lazarus is with him. And they started going, you've got to be kidding me. My ticket only had Jesus on it. I get Lazarus too. Lazarus is the opener. Kind of how we would look at it. I said, yeah. So they got really excited and they took branches of palm trees and went out and met him crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And this brings us to the triumphal entry that we studied last week. So we see that the procession was a bit of a walk to get from Bethany to Jerusalem. It was about two miles long, and it was not an easy road to traverse. It's quite a hill, actually. And for the sake of continuity, I want to read the scripture from last week without commentary to get us to where we need to be as we close our message today. Luke 19, 30 through 40, that's not on your sheet, but I'm just going to read it. Going into the village in front of you, um, 
Where on entering you will find a colt tied, he's talking about the colt and the foal and the donkey, on which no one has ever sat, untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, who, who sent, who he sent, went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying this colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered them, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones cry out. So do we have the picture? Let's pick up the story in Luke 19.41. That's also on your scripture sheet. I will be reading this portion of the scripture from the New Living Translation. It flows. It's just easier to understand at first blush here. But as he came closer to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead, he began to weep. Now, this has always been a very moving scripture for me, even before I knew Jesus. I thought there was something incredibly uh, profound about a man who was so in love with the city that as it came into view, knowing what that city had become, he began to cry. Did Jesus know what he was going to see when he arrived in the city and in the temple? Of course he knew. Did he know the apostasy God's people had once again committed, which means turning away? Did he understand the depth of their immorality, the absolute disrespect they were showing to his father? The blasphemy they were committing in their corrupt interpretation and execution of the law? And the blatant hypocrisy that was on full display by the leadership. Did he know those things? Of course he did. It seems to me that what Jesus knew about Jerusalem and the inhabitants would have given rise to anger instead of sorrow. But not at this point in time. He was experiencing a sense of sorrow, I think, for what the city of Jerusalem had become. Jerusalem was the crown jewel of the Jewish kingdom. And yet Jerusalem had a checkered past. Jerusalem had been besieged in the years 701, 597, 587, 63, and 37 B.C. Jerusalem had been attacked and sometimes almost literally destroyed five times before Christ. It would be besieged in the years 70 A.D., 614, 637, 1099, 1187, 1244, 1834, 1917, and 1948. You think there's not spiritual warfare going on over Jerusalem? 
Now, see, that's a political statement today, but it shouldn't be. Jerusalem had been known as the city of David, city of peace. And by the way, David and his sons were buried in Jerusalem. And the son of David is standing, is seated on a donkey, full, looking at Jerusalem. The fulfillment of that prophecy is on the foal of a donkey. Jesus knew these things as he was gazing at the city while sitting on the foal of a donkey in 30 A.D. Have you ever visited some place that had been very important to you as a child? And you have these incredible memories and found that it had been neglected and was now only a shadow of what it once was. It may have been an old house you grew up in. You remember having incredibly wonderful times in that house as children. And you move away and you go back 30 years later and it's been abandoned. There's no windows no paint. Or perhaps it was the church in which you grew up. Perhaps this church was at one time glorious and taught truth and was active and filled with people who had lived out their faith and took great pride in what God was doing in their midst. It was the epicenter of you and your family's existence. And you return to find that the message coming from the pulpit is weak or anemic or not biblical at all. The joy of God is gone. The excitement that comes through the Holy Spirit is absent. And maybe the building is still beautiful and the lawn is manicured and the music is marvelous and the youth group goes on four mission trips every year and the church feeds the hungry and houses the homeless, but God is not there. That was Jerusalem. So Jesus is on the foal, and he's looking at this once glorious place. It was built to reflect the glory of God. The lawn is still manicured. Stained glass windows are in place. There's even candles in the windows on Christmas Eve. God's not there. Now, we may say that it shouldn't matter about buildings because we've grown up in a time where we've been told time and time again we are the temple of God and God dwells within us, His temple. Therefore, don't get hung up on buildings. I submit to you that it mattered to Jesus and it should matter to us. Jesus wept over the fact that Jerusalem had been built to be the crown jewel of His people Jesus wept over the fact that Jerusalem had become the center of hypocrisy and idolatry and caused people to turn away from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I don't think he was I don't think he had sorrow over the beauty of it. He had sorrow over the emptiness. And we know, do we not, that Jesus does not dwell in earthly buildings. We understand that Jesus dwells within us. And when we are present here, then He is present here. We know that we are His temple and we do not need a house of worship in order to worship. However, when we begin to use these great truths as an excuse to give less to God 
then he asks of us, there is a problem. May I put it another way? How is it that we can justify making our own home into a castle with the best things our money or credit cards can buy, and yet justify building God's house from second-hand materials that do not properly represent what He's done for us? It's always amazed me. People who live in half-million-dollar homes, when it comes time to build a church, many times, do we really need that? I mean, God lives in us, right? He's not here. Think about that. There's a disconnect someplace. Jesus is looking at Jerusalem and weeping because he knows what could have been and is on the eve of Jerusalem's judgment. The city that was built for God's glory will instead condemn his son to death. The rocks and stones in Jerusalem will indeed cry out in judgment. And these same rocks will be pulverized in about 40 years. So we read that Jesus wept for the souls of those who would be lost. Luke 19, 42 through 44 says this. After, he, after it says he wept, he says, How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace. But get these words. But now it is too late. Had they run out of Jerusalem right then and said, we repent, those words would have still been true. It's too late. And peace is hidden from your eyes. Before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and encircle you and close in on you from every side. They will crush you into the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you did not recognize it when God visited you. Now, the term ramparts... Ramparts were something that you would put on the back side of the wall toward the inside of the fort. Sometimes it was earth so that they couldn't push the walls in on you. Now, we know the Battle of Jericho, right? How did, how did God defeat Jericho? He made the walls fall. How? Outward. The ramparts did no good. But listen to what Jesus is saying. They are going to build ramparts against your walls and encircle you and close you in. From every side, he says, when Jerusalem falls, they're not going to attack you in such a way that you can escape. They're going to build ramparts on the outside of your walls so you can't get out. Now that, not necessarily physically, but when it comes to military strategy. They didn't want Jerusalem. They wanted to kill the Jews. In eyewitnesshistory.com, I want to read something for you. It comes from Josephus. Josephus was a very accurate Jewish historian. Um, probably a Pharisee, maybe. And he had the most accurate history. In the year 66 AD, the Jews of Judea rebelled against their Roman masters. And that was because they desecrated the temple. 
Roman, uh, in response, the Emperor Nero dispatched an army under the generalship of Vespasian to restore order. It started in 66 AD. By the year 68, resistance in the northern part of the province had been eradicated, and the Romans turned their full attention to the subjugation of Jerusalem. That same year, the Emperor Nero died of his own hand, creating a power vacuum in Rome. And in the chaos, Vespasian was declared emperor and returned to the imperial city. It fell on his son Titus to lead the remaining army in the assault of Jerusalem. The Roman legions surrounded the city and began to slowly squeeze the life out of the Jewish stronghold. By the year 70, the attackers had breached Jerusalem's outer walls and began a systematic ransacking of the city. The assault culminated in the burning and destruction of the temple that served as a center of Judaism. And in victory, the Romans slaughtered thousands of those spared from death. Thousands more were enslaved and sent to toil in the mines of Egypt. Others were dispersed to arenas throughout the empire to be butchered for the amusement of the public, gladiators. The temple's sacred relics were taken to Rome where they were displayed in celebration of the victory. The rebellion sputtered on for another three years and was finally extinguished in 73 AD with the fall of the various pockets of resistance, including the stronghold in Masada. The Jews let out a shout of dismay that matched the tragedy. This same truth applies to us today. This morning, on August 25, 2019, Christ remains available to us. He is within reach. But there will come a time when it will be too late. So I have a question for you. What if we were to interpret Luke 19, 43 through 44 about the destruction of Israel and how they were trapped on a personal level? Let's read it differently. Luke 19, 43 says, Before long, your enemy who is Satan will build ramparts against your walls and encircle you and close in on you from every side. He will crush you into the ground and your children with you. He will not leave a single... He will not leave a single stone in place. Why? Because you did not recognize him. He visited you at a predetermined time in history right now. Down to the second, every person who was or will be conceived will know beyond any doubt that Jesus is Lord and that he died and rose from the grave to offer salvation and save us from the wrath of God. For a few, according to the scriptures, just a few, this realization will be greeted with celebration and great joy. 
There will come a time when we will hear the trumpet. And all of humanity will look up at the same time and see the same Jesus charging on a white horse. And we will rejoice. But for most, it will be met with great sorrow and fear. Family, every thought, every gesture, and every gift receives the attention of heaven. We must be willing to give to God everything. And the time is coming when our enemy will hem us in and we cannot escape unless you know Jesus. And the good news is Jesus is calling today because today is a time of salvation. This is a day of salvation. This is the hour of salvation. We don't even have the next hour guaranteed. So when I think about Jesus sitting on that foal, looking at Jerusalem and saying, what you could have had, what you could have had. I do wonder about people I know that don't know Jesus. What you could have had. We know that Jesus is good, and He's faithful, and He's here, and He's listening. Father, I thank You Lord, I pray that we might be able to understand more and more and more deeply how important this is that there will come a time, literally, when those who have refused you will be hemmed in. God, may we pray faithfully for our loved ones. May we pray faithfully for our family and our loved ones. And God, may we pray for our enemies. God does not delight in the destruction of the wicked. Lord, may you change the way we think. We love you, God, and thank you for your goodness and patience. For in Jesus' holy and precious name, we pray, amen. Love to pray with you if you would love prayer. Blessings.